So hello everyone, welcome back to Let's Talk Faith and Justice. Uh, my name is Boston, pronouns are he, him. My name's Lyndon, pronouns he, him, the other co-host with us today to talk about um, a pastoral care line for queer folks in Winnipeg are Jane Barter, Theo Robinson, Sophie Schmiga, and Andrew Rampton. And apologies uh, if I have mispronounced any of your names. So um, maybe we'll start with you, Jane. Um, well, hello, um, my name is Jane Barter. I am, um, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm a professor of religion and culture at the University of Winnipeg. I'm also a priest in the Diocese of Rupert's Land. Good to be here. Uh, my name is Theo Robinson. My pronouns are he, him. I'm an Anglican priest in the Diocese of Rupert's Land, working for the Lutherans in the MNO Synod um, outside of the city of Winnipeg, actually. I guess that's me. And yeah, you did pronounce my name correctly. My name is Jofie Schmitke. Uh, I currently use pronouns she, her. I'm located in uh, Treaty 1 territory and homeland of the Red River Métis Nation um, in the city of Winnipeg. Uh, yeah, that's me. I uh, serve St. Mark's Lutheran Church in the Manitoba Northwestern Ontario Synod here. And I'm Andrew Rampton. My pronouns are he, him. I am the parish priest at Holy Trinity Anglican Church uh, right in the middle of Winnipeg for the next 25 days. And on January 1st, I become the rector of St. John's in Hamilton, Ontario, in the Diocese of Niagara. Um, so a Winnipegger for a long time and for a few weeks more. <laughs> That's exciting. Um, Okay, well, let's, I'm interested in hearing about some of the background of what led to needing to form this pastoral care line for, for queer folks. Um, read a bit of background on your story about the, the anti-queer organizing that was across Canada in fall of 2023, and be interested to hear how that unfolded in Winnipeg. I think I'll leave that to Jane, like you got us, I think, on the roll there. But um, yeah, it was definitely in reaction to what was happening in September there. Yeah, so uh, the parental rights group, um, uh, what's, it's called Million March for Kids. Uh, they made their way into Winnipeg and they managed to galvanize a lot of parents. There were protests against um, what they understood to be the school curriculum and the use of pronouns. And so... Um, as a result, they also had a demonstration um, at the legislature, and as a result, the trans community and their allies, they formed a counter-protest, and what became abundantly clear was the kind of effect this was having on youth. Um, so for this backsliding of trans rights um, seemed to be just a devastating blow to uh, young people who had felt as though they were making some gains. And we also knew that the parental rights groups were religiously motivated to a large degree. And so we wanted to present an alternative to the right-wing, conservative, um, anti-trans, anti-queer um, religious groups that were presenting um, at these, these marches and rallies. So we started this pastoral care line 
And this pastoral care line was intended to provide another face of the church to provide pastoral support and referrals in the cases of emergencies. And so we did kind of a, a pretty extensive intake to make sure that we weren't dealing with crises, but we were dealing with the sorts of things that pastors deal with, which are spiritual questions and concerns. And so I called together my friends, Dio and Andrew, and before long, we had a whole group, but we had 26 uh, clergy from all denominations in Winnipeg who volunteered right away uh, and who saw that this was an important endeavor. Well, it's excellent because I know that uh, many of us were taken aback to see the level of organizing from the kind of hateful folks. And as you know, there was a pretty strong religious element, including Christian. Um, so it's great when we could put up another kind of approach to that from a progressive Christian lens. Um, so were people taking, signing up for time slots to kind of staff the line? And you- Yeah, we had, uh, we had like a coordinator that uh, came on board and uh, would, yeah, we kind of knew who we thought would be the safe clergy in the area, right? And called them up and asked if they wanted to um, help out. And they would take, I think it was four hour time slots over the day. And um, yeah, people were pretty eager to jump on board and take time slots. We had a couple of people uh, who are clergy in the area, but didn't work Sunday mornings. And so they would take the Sunday mornings for those of us who had to work at our churches, right? Um, so it didn't take long to fill up those slots. And um, it, it, essentially the call would come into that coordinating line and our coordinator would take the uh, information about the person. And so you weren't directly giving your number out to anybody, right? They would get that number, would get passed on to whoever was on call. And it was their responsibility then to call and check in with that person and, and, and help them in whatever spiritual way they needed at that time. Wow, that sounds great. Um, and what was, what was the result of this? You did a month long experiment. Um, what, what kinds of things to, were maybe surprising? Well, I think one of the things that I would sort of contribute to that would be that um, it wasn't initially a month long. Initially, it was going to be uh, a couple of weeks. Um, and then with the capacity of more people, and um, I can let the others speak to other things that happen, machinations behind the, behind the scenes. But um, even for myself, I was having a conversation with some colleagues over lunch about how I was volunteering some of my time to do this. Um, and they immediately said, uh, okay, I want to do it too. And I was able to pass their names on um, as people who could additionally um, be available too. So it just, the momentum kept, kept going from that side of things. Yeah, we were really pleased with the response from the Diocese of Rupert's Land and the Manitoba Northern Ontario Synod when we contacted them and said, look, this is a need in our community. Uh, we have people who are willing to volunteer, but we can't ask someone to coordinate all of this essentially uh, 20 hours a day or whatever it was. Uh, seven days a week for nothing. Uh, we need money to pay them. Uh, and both the diocese and the synod stepped up without any real question uh, and gave us money so that we could pay the person. Uh, so between the volunteers willing to staff the line and the material resources from our respective churches, uh, what was supposed to be a two-week emergency turned into a month-long project that uh, widened the accessibility considerably. 
um, Theo can speak better to how many calls were received. We all kind of said, this is the sort of thing that you set up and hope the phone never rings, that everybody is is already looked after and has a safe place and has people they can talk to, and uh, but you want it available in case that's not true. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the phone was ringing off the hook, right? Like, but the fact that it was there, we had people mentioning just the fact that it existed was enough to help them see kind of a different side of Christianity, right? And I think what surprised me was how far it reached. Um, I spoke personally to somebody who was in Newfoundland, and that was surprising to me <laughs> that that would have happened. So, um, so I don't, I think we might have, I don't know the number anymore, maybe a half dozen or so, but it was important to those people and it helped those particular people. And all we've heard so far is 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 good news that it existed for that time period that it was that it was in place. So um I think it was an experiment that went well, in my opinion. Yeah, and after the pilot, we also had a follow-up meeting with the volunteers. Um, and the volunteers who, who were there were really keen to continue to offer a pastoral presence and to make sure that we had a system in place where trans and queer folks would know that which, which churches were safe, where they could, for example, receive support for weddings or funerals or other forms of pastoral and liturgical care. And so the second part of our project after this pilot is to follow up on that, to receive some funding and to create a kind of database and training for um, just really affirming congregations that are going to be supportive for the unique unique needs of uh, of queer youth. What what kind of criteria do you use to determine if a congregation is safe for queer folks? Yeah, good question. That is a good question. Um, we right now we know of things like reconciling. In Christ, like the RIC program. So, if there's churches labeled as such, um, though that those are places that have gone through the work and and have made the decision they're going to be affirming. So that is a question that um, we're going to have to figure out. So we'll be forming a steering committee who will have to look into those kind of things because just to take somebody's word at it isn't going to be enough, right? There's going to have to be some other thing. So it might be just that we link to the websites that currently list. United Churches and Lutheran churches that are, you know, affirming and welcoming. So, but those are the questions that we're going to have to lay out and figure out before we move any further along in this project. Right. It kind of, it kind of works like, I, I believe it kind of works like call process, right? For so that some of us who are clergy are familiar with what that means, um, but that you know you you have a sense of your own purpose. And what you are meant to do in your life, and then you and other people affirm that sense of purpose. Well, within within the church community, people know other people and can affirm whether or not somebody is safe. Or within the queer community, I myself identify as queer, and I know other queer people within the queer community who are tied to churches and can who can speak to their own church communities that, as to whether they're safe or not. So that word of mouth becomes a bond right that can then inform that database as well and so we're going to use that we're going to use those as strengths to build the database we also have checks and balances of course in place as clergy so you know the fact that we're 
We have to um, uh, have criminal record checks and child abuse registry checks and those kinds of things. And we also have to be priests or ministers in good standing in order to be able to volunteer for these kinds of things. Once we get this pilot, this project off the ground, we also want to provide training. So we're aware that there are many clergy, uh, queer clergy and their allies who would be excellent um, in offering this kind of leadership. We're not entirely sure their congregations would be, though. And so we want to make sure that when we do recommend a parish, that we're putting them in safe, putting folks in safe places. That might require training. It will certainly require discernment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's probably a, a bigger question. You can identify individuals more readily than congregations, as you mentioned, the reconciling in Christ designation, which for Lutherans and others is a process to to go through where you publicly proclaim that you're a queer-friendly congregation for those not familiar and usually go through like several months of discernment. Some congregations take a long time, particularly if there's resistance. Um, but the question is if someone's gone through that 15 years ago, right? Where where are things today? Yeah. Are we are we still uh talking using language that's outdated or or whatnot so those are all sound like important questions you're you're asking well and also being careful with nuance too right just because a congregation says that they're queer affirming doesn't mean in fact that they're trans friendly or right. that they're they're not actually supremacist white supremacists or a group of people who have issues with indigenous people or anything any other situation that so it's a, it's a nuance and it becomes it becomes a very delicate balance of yeah. what is safety. We we had that conversation, a version of that conversation in the very uh, initial stages of thinking about how to set this up about we'd like to offer uh, pastoral care and support to two-spirited LGBTQ plus folks, but nobody in, in those initial conversations, Jane Theo and I, uh, is Indigenous or two-spirited, and it's a particular intersection of cultural and sexuality stuff. And so uh, we had to have a talk about is if someone calls and says, this is how I identify and this is the help that I need, do we have someone we can point them to? Or are we promising things that we can't deliver on? And how do we manage that uh, so as not to accidentally uh, make someone feel uh, left out, forgotten about, or otherwise dismissed when they call in looking for help? So finding ways to do all of those things with uh, with the best of intentions, but also being able to follow through on them has been uh, sometimes long and difficult conversations from the very start. And so um, I guess looking ahead to the future, um, you guys, you have all talked about um, looking ahead and, and continuing something like this, um is it still primarily in the winnipeg area that you've been organizing or have you been reaching out across uh, provincial borders yeah, we haven't yet how about that let's put a get on that um all the people that we've worked with so far are winnipeg or manitoba based um we have already talked about expanding into across dioceses because Manitoba has two different Anglican dioceses. Um, 
I think the in in my opinion, the hope would be that it would go outside of Manitoba, but you have to start somewhere, and this is where we are. So so far, it's who we have in front of us, and then. But I I do have people, and I don't know about anybody else, but I do have people who have reached out from places like Calgary and Edmonton and BC, like that are interested. We just haven't made it that far down the path yet. Yeah. And I think this has huge implications for so many things in the life of the church. So for example, how are seminarians being trained? Like to what degree are they actually receiving training in pastoral care for queer folk, right? Do they do they learn that in pastoral care courses? If they do, how old is it? How up to date is it? And so, you know, what I would really like to think about in the future is, is what would good training look like, right? What would a good theology look like that would ground um, uh, people who are training for ministry um, in practices that are actually going to be life-giving and not death-dealing for, you know, very, very vulnerable people who may come to see them. This is one of those, this is one of those examples where, where our full communion relationship, the relationship that we have between the Lutherans and the Anglicans really comes into the fore because um, in some ways um, there's an opportunity for, for sharing of information here um, and sharing a relationship where um, the ELCIC in particular might be a little bit more um, in a different part of a journey um, of this journey and able to inform backwards as it were, but also still going forward. Um, echoing what Theo had said, I have uh, friends and colleagues across this country who have said, we'd like to be able to do this where we are at as well. And I've had to say right now, for right now, we're focusing on where we're located, but please start looking at what you can do where you are located. If you have the capacity, don't wait for us to, to reach out to you um, because it, it would be too late. Um, if, if you feel there's a need for, for you to be doing the work um, where you're located, then find, find your colleagues, find the people that you can trust to start building the capacity to offer this kind of support. Yeah, that's, that sounds like good advice to get people organizing locally and maybe the experiment they come up with, right, will look different depending on the local context. I remember going to a rally here at the BC legislature and hearing afterwards people being happy just to see uh, members of clergy who were visibly present and engaging. And I know each context is a bit different. And even within BC, where um, some of the queer affirming folks were outnumbered in places like Surrey and Abbotsford, whereas in Victoria, was like a 10 to 1 ratio where we dwarfed them uh, right from the start that it was only police presence that kept them there at all from being pushed out of the lawn. Um, so it was a very different dynamic. So it was very festive. It got a bit feisty at times. And uh, but it was good to be to be present for that. And not just for those few weeks where that was happening, but then as you're doing, how do we organize for the long-term? And that, what kind of communication did you use then to get out the word there's a pastoral care line and that there's clergy organizing and who care? We made use of the diocesan and synod 
mailing lists and contacts. So it went out to Anglicans and Lutherans and whoever they chose to share it with. Um, we have, and when I say we, I mean churches in this area broadly have a really good friend in John Longhurst who writes for the Winnipeg Free Press, but uh, frequently gets published more broadly, who reports on stuff that's happening in religion in Canada that perhaps isn't the usual day-to-day -day stuff. So he wrote a piece for us and got it up uh, and out there pretty quickly. Uh, Jane and Theo, you were with CBC Radio, I think, yeah, one CBC Manitoba, CBC Manitoba, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then lots of social media accounts and sharing around and uh, and encouraging people to pass this on. Like, this is a an easy repost. Just get it out there and, and share it around. Yeah, and once Andrew set up the uh, website, that got shared everywhere. Like, it hit Facebook and... It just went everywhere. So word of mouth is a big thing. <laughs> or the power of the keyboard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I think those uh, that word of mouth transmission is really important because uh, I might see an ad for a resource and think, oh, that's interesting. But being the skeptical man that I am, uh, then I need to go find out uh, who that website is affiliated with at like, is it really queer pastoral care or is it the gospel coalition trying to convince me to do their version of queer pastoral care, which is absolutely not what I need. Um, and so, but if Theo or Jane or Jofi sends me a thing and says, these are good folks doing a thing, then my, my vetting uh, is much less intense because it's coming from folks that I trust. And I, I think ultimately for this project, that's going to be the thing that, uh, until it has some, you know, major trustworthy institutional stamp on it, um, the, the word of mouth and friend to friend sharing is going to be the thing that makes it successful. Yeah, and I want to say like a lot of this groundwork was laid by um, Theo and Andrew, just given the amount of public litur liturgical work that they had done even prior to our, our call line and even prior to this crisis. And, and for those people who are thinking of doing something in their own diocese or in their own context, I find this a really instructive example because, well, Theo and Andrew could speak to it better, but they were doing, was a queer even song that you called it? And this was an invitation to participate in an Anglican liturgy, right, for queer folk. And it was a way, I think, a really beautiful way of showing the breadth of the Anglican tradition and its capacity to speak to things that perhaps the secular society doesn't speak to and to a kind of longing that folks have for community and for communion with God. I mean, I you, I feel like you you folks could speak to it much better than that. So yeah, the the queer even song thing um, has has been a great project that I really enjoyed being part of and uh, has uh, fostered some really cool relationships. The piece about it when Theo and Matthew and I was it the three of us who sat down for the first one Theo yeah. um, that we really wanted to display was that. Anglican Evensong is already queer. Uh, it doesn't need a lot of uh, external or aesthetic adjustment. Uh, you just need to sort of rotate your view 20 or 30 degrees. Uh, and so it was a completely straightforward Anglican Evensong, the kind that has been done for generations in our churches. But 
we picked particular feast days like uh, Justin Martyr. Um, I can't even remember what the first one was. Uh, we picked particular preachers. We picked particular music, all from completely standard Anglican sources. But you line them up and talk about them in such a way that you suddenly realize that queer people and the queer experience have always been present in our scripture and our tradition. Uh, they have just often been the light under the bushel basket rather than put into full view. Um, and I think that approach, it's one approach, not necessarily the only or the most correct one, but I think that approach um, created some conversation both among people who uh, expected in good ways and in bad ways, the liturgy to be just a whole lot more queer. Like there was no glitter, there were nobody doing liturgical dance in go-go shorts. Like there were none of the things, it it did not look like an episode of Queer as Folk in an Anglican church, which I think is what people expected. And some were disappointed that it wasn't and some were pleasantly surprised that it wasn't. But I think being able to demonstrate that queerness in our tradition is not a new thing it's just a thing that has been hidden for a long time uh for me anyway was the most affirming way to go about doing that yeah it's great to add the the liturgical tradition in there and as you say there's a whole spectrum of how you could go about any any of these things so it's it's great to ground that in, in religious practices. I know sometimes the criticism of progressive Christians is that we appeal too much to, to a politic or a justice orientation devoid of faith and spiritual practices. And so when you can keep those together, I think there's always opportunities for, for both in a sense, right? Things we're doing as a congregation or in different ministries can be overtly religious and faith-based. And when we're in the community, there might be, it might be faithful, right? When you're at the rally or whatever it is to not um, um, like kind of project uh, a faith-based uh, response to people who have experienced religious trauma. So you kind of, right, need to build trust and relationship with people. So you can kind of do both of those things both can be faithful, but one can be more overt expression. Um, what kinds of feedback do you get from, from folks who said some, I mean, there was the different reactions to the style of queer liturgy, um, but a lot of this is, sounds like relationship building over time too, right? People already in the church, people who might not be, or who've had trauma. Um, have you had a chance to meet together or with other clergy to talk about some of those things? I think I would sort of jump in here and talk about how um, I think it's really important that we do check in with each other. Um, I wasn't ordained as a queer person. I didn't come out until much later in my adulthood. I wasn't out in my first call because it wasn't, um, safe for me to do so. Um, this is the first time I've been in a call where I've received hate mail for being who I am. And uh, so it's been really important for me to check in on my colleagues, especially over the last year to make sure that they're doing okay, to hear them ask me if I'm okay. Um, 
but I take a really sort of kitchen table mentality to my faith. It's like, I am at the table, come to the table, let's have a conversation. Um, I think Lutherans and Anglicans collectively do a really bad job of talking about their faith um, and where they are sort of living their faith and how they sort of live out their faith and talking about the diversity within our faith practices, um, even within our own denominations. Um, so it's important um, to build relationship in talking about our faith, to build connection with each other by relating to each other. Um, our God is a multifaceted God. We are all created to be the representation of this multifaceted God. So the only way we get to know God is by getting to know each other, um, which might be a really humanist sort of approach to things, but I guess that's my West Coast upbringing sort of shaping how I look at my face. But yeah, so I think it's really important for us to continually check in with each other to, to say, how are you doing? Is what's weighing on you? What are you celebrating right now? What can I celebrate with you? Yeah, and I think in terms of the crisis line, the crisis line, the pastoral care line, one of the reasons why we didn't want to go with it being a crisis line is because we're, we're certainly not trained. Most of us are not trained to be, to do those kinds of interventions, but we are trained as pastors, right? And and so what we were hoping to do, and I think which we've done successfully, is to be able to talk, have those theological talks to say, you know, look, God loves you precisely the way you are, for who you are right? And, and you are created in the image and likeness of God, as you are, you know, as a beautiful, young, trans person. And so to have that message coming from the church, I think is a different message from, you know, the very good work that a lot of psychotherapeutic groups could, are doing with the queer community. But it, it is a unique uh, gift that I think a group like this has to offer. It's also, uh, on my side at least, prompted some really useful conversations with folks both in church communities and queer communities about the difficulty, the particular difficulty that comes from living where those two circles overlap in the Venn diagram. Because uh, sometimes, or often, um, the queer community would not like you present because they can't understand uh, how your faith reconciles with your sexuality. And your church community would rather not have you present because they can't understand how your sexuality reconciles with your faith. Uh, and you are, uh, in that case, um, a member of two particular groups, which normally you would gravitate to for support and community. And, and both have said that they would rather not have you, or they just find you confusing or whatever the thing is. There's some degree of of unwelcomeness on both sides. And so the need, like what Jane was saying earlier, for uh, people who not only understand that experience, but who are capable of sitting with people who are living that experience and offering them pastoral and spiritual care that addresses both sides of that sort of complicated balancing act uh, is really important and is, uh, is true for many communities who are church plus something else, whether it's queer or any other uh, uh, marginalized group. Um, and being able to have those conversations and draw attention to the fact 
that there is this group of people in the middle of that diagram whose needs are often not being met by anyone uh, has also been really useful um, to begin to think about ways to be better at doing that. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, apart from say campus ministry, where here at UVic with inclusive Christians, where it's has overtly been created as a space for uh, queer Christians and allies, it can be challenging to to introduce that into congregational spaces or other ministries without the kind of collegial support you have there, because it can be alienating or you do have queer folks looking for a church home and then what, what they find is like oh that's not quite maybe what i was looking for because as, as you say the the venn diagrams don't overlap for everyone in the ways that are comfortable um i know if we've had students say well why can't we just have inclusive christians but at the church and that's a very good question right they want it to be built from the ground up for them in ways that are comfortable for them and not just a prayer that we tacked on Sunday morning or confession or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, in, in January coming up, those of us who are in reconciling in Christ congregations try to shift the whole liturgy a little bit. It's not so radical. I think it's probably can be closer to what you talk about with Evensong where you're just looking at things through a different lens. Um, so it's traditional liturgy, relatively speaking, but the readings and the prayers and everything all and and songs have a different focus. Um, but those are questions that keep coming up. And what would it look like? In this case, we might invite students to come bring music and voices. So that will give it quite a bit of a different feeling than if it's the same leadership as usual with just a slightly different focus, but elevating some of these other voices, then there's that element of unpredictability. <laughs> I'm like, oh boy, these Venn diagrams, it could get it could get a little messy and we'll see how everybody does. But it, it's good to have some of that as well. Um, and just thinking about what what does what kind of Christian community would queer folks really appreciate those already those of us right already in the church those looking for a church home um how sounds seems like the kind of partnership you're building will help uh you grow in into building that network of collegial support and and ministries to do some of that yeah and i don't want to give up entirely um on the quote unquote traditional parish um, I just came out of traditional parish ministry. And, and one of the things that I find is that often like lay people are far ahead on these kinds of questions, certainly than the hierarchy would be in the Anglican church. And so those times when I have preached on issues pertaining to LGBTQ-ish uh, folks um, that I al always get, I mean, I'm sure I get complaints that I don't hear, but I always get somebody say, hey, you know, my granddaughter just came out and I'm really glad you said that. And I'm really glad that you said that this can be reconciled with Christian faith uh, because we haven't heard that enough, right? And so for me, I think that's an important part of the work that we do as well is to, to walk together with family members 
who may have grown up with a very poor theology um, and to show them ways that that theology needs to change in order to be to be truly you know I would say Christian but truly inclusive of their their queer family member or friend or themselves yeah yeah I would echo that I don't think I don't think the there is no desire of any of us to sort of usurp church whatever that looks like for people and I was sort of even even your question Lyndon about like building a church community that for queer like what kind of church would a queer person look for made me bristle a bit because even within my queer connections they're all looking for a different kind of church just like my church community this the community I serve is made up of a plethora of people who are looking for a different kind of church um we have a we have a we are all subjective people, right? So we're all looking for something different. And I think uh, just because we're working on one, one issue, um, which is multifaceted, doesn't mean we're working on it to the exclusion of everything else. We're just lifting up one particular thing that we all really care about and that resonates really deeply for us. And we are all kind of people that will empower and uplift other people who have issues that they are equally passionate about and we will come alongside them as well and say how can we how can we help you um it's important for me that it's not just like this is my only thing um this is just the thing that i i know that i have gifts and skills to help with yeah good point yeah i think i think my hope and i'm just one guy is that uh churches generally could uh, move from a place of um, suspicion and fear, which is where lots of them are, uh, through the place of, uh, of toleration uh, into a place of having conversations where, where someone says like, you actually live in the world in a different way than I do. Like you, you see and hear and experience things differently than I do because we've been made in different ways. So like, tell me about how you know God because I bet you know God in a different way than I do. And I bet that I could learn something about God from the way that you know God and, and vice versa for that matter. I mean, um, I have this conversation with parents all the time. I am not a parent. I have no sense of vocation to parenthood. Um, but parents talk about their understanding of God based on their experience as parents in part. And there's so much in there that that I find fascinating and helpful that I, I will not learn experientially. Um, but I can learn secondhand from the people who do that thing in their lives and and so on and so on, pick whatever group of people. So there's this I think there's this disconnect where someone who's thinking about queer folks in church for the first time is trying to navigate their way through that suspicion and fear toleration bridge. And for a lot of queer folks and allies and people who have been there for longer, they're at this other spot where it's like, no, this is not only are these are these people who we should consider letting in the building. These are actually people who bring particular gifts and insights and things that the whole church could benefit from if we let them and finding a way to 
keep all of those people walking together, even if they're at different parts on the on the map. Uh, one of those dotted line maps from Indiana Jones, right? Um, finding a way to keep them all walking together, even though some of them are far apart on that journey, I think is a real challenge um, because often there's an assumption that if I say, uh, I would like something to be different because this circumstance seems to exclude me or makes me feel unsafe or whatever, the the reaction is, oh, well, then you want to go and do a different thing. Mm -hmm. And it, no, I would like to do this thing, but in a safe and appreciative and and wholesome way. That's, yeah. Yeah, and having an opportunity to have those conversations face-to-face -face can be important because so often we're siloed into having other kinds of conversations that don't intersect in the ways you're describing because or you're talking about uh, me at the kitchen table, you have to be at the table with people when you're breaking bread together. And uh, I think so much of faith life and then also organizing life, which can overlap, requires that, that kind of meeting in person in a way that can't be replicated uh, online to the same extent. You can have meaningful connections online and it could be right this a pastoral care number is the first point of contact for some people or they're having a tough time but how does it go towards meeting in person with people near where they live and and yeah not not just lead to siloed ministries that come for wednesday night for at the church for this this flavor and thursday nights this other one um uh so we don't through good intentions we don't want to get into a segregated church mm -hmm. either um even when sometimes the desires i hear expressed are like a very particular kind of expression that might not fly sunday morning at 10 a.m but maybe there's some way we can mediate that maybe we can elevate some of those voices for preaching or music or liturgy creation that they feel that there's enough of them in it that they're not just a prayer petition or whatever it is um so anyway it's helping me <laughs> think out loud a bit about how we do this work yeah i think uh finding ways to have those conversations um is in my experience one of the places where allies can be the most immediately helpful. So Boston, you and I were both at General Synod back in June in Calgary, and there was a contentious debate about uh, liturgical options for recognizing people who've had gender transitions, who've changed their name for one reason or another, all these sorts of life milestones that um, we might want to recognize in a ceremony in church. And as you can imagine, there were people on both sides and all points in the middle with things to say. Um, and some of the comments uh, for me were extremely irritating. Uh, and I wanted to say, I wanted to make a response, but couldn't come up with anything that would have been appropriate in a microphone at a church meeting. So I just sort of sat there and stewed. And another priest 
um, a straight woman from Edmonton uh, got up and spoke very articulately many of the things that my brain uh, would have liked to come up with. Um, she did a great job of, of explaining many things that were being misunderstood uh, about offering resources to people who simply hadn't done the homework to, to find out where any of this had come from. And so afterward, I went to her and I thanked her for saying that because it was it was what I wanted to be heard in the room. And she very matter-of-factly shrugged and said, I'm a straight white lady from Edmonton. I don't have a dog in this fight. But she said, I know there are people in the room who wanted those things said for whom it would have been too either upsetting or vulnerable making to get up and say those things. So she said, here's where I can be helpful. It's it's not about me, but I can do a thing for you that then you don't have to go through the the pain of doing, right? And mm -hmm. I thought, man, like this is this is really kick-ass. We can I have six of you to take you home <laughs> uh, and put to work in other parts of the church? It, it was it was a great moment, but it, those sort of uh, bridging conversations where, uh, like you say, you don't want a segregated church, but to sort of open the door in the segregating wall needs somebody to stand at the door who is not part of the marginalized community to sort of lay the groundwork for how we behave when this wall, this segregating wall comes down. Um, and I think it's, uh, as I say, in my experience, one of the most immediately uh, helpful and affirming things that I have seen allies do is take up the conversations that queer folks in this case uh, want to have but are too angry, vulnerable, scared, whatever the thing is, to take on themselves. I'm just looking at the time here. We're uh, kind of towards the end of our booking. Um, and so I just wondered before we kind of wrap up, if there's anything else any of you would like to, to add. Um, well, apart from thank you to thanking you for uh, having us today, I just would encourage any um, people who are listening to to try this out. You know, uh, it was quite amazing how quickly we were able to come together. And I think that, you know, for clergy to provide a space uh, for folks who are in need, a safe space for folks who are need in need, um, I think is a really, a really good thing to do. And um, I think provides a different kind of perspective on what the church can look like for for the community that's excellent and could we, do you want to throw up any of your socials where can people find you uh or websites you want to lift up <laughs> um i i can be reached at uh, jane barter on x at jane barter on x formerly known as Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Rev Theo Robinson. Valerie would find that on Facebook. But... The project website is still around and it is 2slgbtqpastoralcare.ca. Uh, and if you want to find me, I am bookish priest almost everywhere uh, online or I think on Facebook, I'm still Andrew Rampton because I haven't figured out the branding page thing, but. <laughs> and uh, I have the luxury 
and privilege of having a fairly unique name. So if you're able to spell it, Jofie Schmidtke, anywhere on the socials, you'll find me, but on Instagram, primarily uh, at Jofie underscore S-C-H, you'll find me. Um, or at St. Mark's in Winnipeg. Come on down. We're, uh, yeah. we're a great yeah. place Thanks to be. Come, come gather at the table. <laughs> All right. Well, we have our typical thank yous that we give. We thank yeah. CFUV, it's Campus Radio here in Victoria for hosting us. Um, you can download this, this podcast and also it's on air on Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, we thank Lutheran Church of the Cross supporting us, Multi-Faith Center, UVic, and the BC Synod, ELCIC. Yeah, and thank you all for taking, you know, providing so much of your time to come and talk about this awesome project. And we hope to uh, have an update sometime in the near future. <laughs> and thank you to all of our listeners.